You're listening to audio from Journey Bible Church. Join us every week for sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you would like to connect with us, head to journeybible.org connect. Good morning. Isn't it great to uh, see the next generation of members of the local church, amen? amen? And wasn't it great to have them up here singing and leading worship this morning? Yes. I love that. You guys can respond, by the way. You can say, yes, that's great. You know, one of the things I love about Journey Bible Church is how hard we work to try to include all the generations in the, the ministry and the mission of the church. And that's just really important for us because we believe by rubbing shoulders with those older than us and those younger than us, we have a lot to learn. We have a lot of energy to gain. We have a lot of wisdom to impart. My name is Mike Bickley, if you're new here, and I serve uh, here at Journey Bible Church as the lead pastor. And we're in a series called Allowed to Ask. And what we're doing is we're looking at some questions and answers of some questions that are common to those that are uh, Christ followers. And in week one, we looked at the question, can I choose my own path to God? And we said, of course, everybody gets to choose their response to who God is. But we also said that not all paths lead to the same destination and that that choice in itself has grave consequences. And so why not listen to the clear advice of Jesus who declared that there are not many paths to God. There's only one path to God, and it's through him. In week two, we looked at this this idea of faith deconstruction, and we talked about how that movement is destructive, and rather it's good to examine our faith. And we said that our doubts and questions are welcomed because our faith can stand up to any scrutiny that it's given. Last week, we looked at, can I trust the Bible? And we saw that internally, the Bible itself makes a strong claim that it is God's word given to mankind so that we can know him and love him. And we also saw that out of all the works of antiquity, any other historical document, it is the most attested document in history. So this morning we want to ask this question. Do I need to belong to a church? I think it's a great question. It's really practical, right? And and I, I I'll be I'll be honest with you, I almost wanted to do like grab a mic and come down there and do a man on the street or do do pastor in the pew and go person to person and say, Hey, what is a church? You have three seconds. Or you have five seconds and, and ask could you tell me what a church is? Could you give me an answer to that question? And then second, do you know why it is so necessary and commanded for every believer to be a part of a local church? You know, a friend of mine trains church planters, and um, he uh, often trains them at the very beginning uh, by telling them that people react to the church like they react to sushi. He says people either love sushi or they hate sushi. How many of you are sushi lovers out there? Okay. How many of you are sushi haters out there? 
Yeah, we, we got about a 50-50. And he says, believe it or not, out there, outside of this gathering of a church, are people who think that the most appalling thing in the world is not dead raw fish. It's the church. And he says, how would you convince a friend of yours who's appalled and threatened by the raw fish called sushi? How would you convince them to go try it? And he says, in some ways, that's what you're trying to do with church. Convince haters that what they think appalling is actually life-giving. So many people have had bad experiences with the church. And I got to tell you, the church is more than having an entertaining message, some great music, a nice building, and some friendly people. You know, many times people define the church in their own terms, and they'll say, isn't the church blank? And they'll fill it in. Isn't the church just another organization? Isn't the church just a club like the Rotary Club? Isn't the church just a political action committee for Trump? Isn't the church what I want it to be? Isn't the church an outdated institution? Isn't the church something that thwarts the progress of our culture? Isn't the church something that keeps people in bondage to outdated thoughts? You know, you can fill in the blank. You've probably heard a whole bunch of statements about the nature and the purpose and the identity of the church. So I thought it would be really good just to review for you quickly this morning. We're going to um, take about 25 total minutes to talk about the church, and then we're going to do some Q&A. And, and you'll notice that uh, number up there, the 932 number. If you send questions as we work through this morning, they're going to get those and then present them to me, and I'll try to answer as many of them as I can during our time. But we should answer this question, what is the church? Let me try to unpack a really simple idea. The church is not a building. The church is its people. Amen? Amen. So while you came to a building this morning, you didn't come to a church. But you will say that, like, hey, where do you go to church? And you'll give them a location. You'll give them an address. When, when, when you drive up, you might even say to yourself, hey, we're at church. And you may be coming when the people aren't gathered here. But the church is not a building. The church is people. And the church actually consists of all the true followers of Jesus Christ who've been delivered from the world system that's ruled by Satan and have been transferred into the kingdom that's ruled by our Lord. The church is those that have been rescued, delivered, transferred. Here's the way Paul described it at the end of the first chapter when he's writing to the church at Colossae. He says, he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's the... The domain of darkness is another way of saying the world system ruled by Satan and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the church consists of all the true followers of Jesus who've been rescued and delivered 
from the rule and the power of Satan and this world and have been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. The church exists of those who've been born again, who've been saved, who are trusting in Jesus. That's who the church is. When Jesus was on this earth and he was telling his apostles and his disciples what was coming, he explained to them that the old covenant was being fulfilled by him, the Messiah, and a new covenant was being made. And in the new covenant, the community would be called the church. And you'll remember in Matthew 16, Jesus is asking the disciples, hey, who are people saying I am? And they're saying, well, man, you're Jeremiah, or you're one of the prophets, or you're this, or you're that. And Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? Peter steps forward and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said this, I tell you, you are Peter, the word Petros. You remember his name is, you know, Cephas, and he's now being named Peter, and the word Peter means a rock. And he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, the Catholics take that as the, the rock that the church is built on is Peter. He was the first pope. But Peter himself didn't understand that. That's not at all what Peter thought. As a matter of fact, Peter tells us exactly what he thought Jesus was saying when you read his letter of 1 Peter. And what he understood it to say is Jesus is saying, you are Peter, you are a rock, you are a stone of the church. He says, but I will build my church on this rock. Jesus is going on myself. And that's why Peter says that Christ is the cornerstone and all of the true believers are just a stone in the building of the church, in the metaphor, the building of the church. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then notice this, the church is the custodian of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the church is the kingdom outpost. The church is the body of true believers who've been called out of the world, who gather together and congregate to live out the word of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. The uh, word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. It's used 115 different times. It's a compound word. Ek means out. And klesia comes from the verb to call. And so it means a people called out. A people called out of their bondage. A people called out of the world. A people called out of the domain of darkness. These are people who've been saved, rescued, redeemed, delivered, forgiven. And they now have a shared faith in Jesus Christ. They are a church, a, a congregation, a, a, a gathering of true believers. And so you and I belong to the church. Jesus told his disciples this way as he led to the communication about the nature of the church. He said, if you were of this world, the world would love you as its, as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world the world hates you. See, it's natural for the church to be hated by the world system in which it is salt and light. 
Because we're not of the world, we're not of the darkness, we're not of the system ruled by Satan. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. But take courage. I have overcome the world. And so it's very important for us to realize that the church is this group of people. Now, scholars will tell you that the word church is used in two ways, to refer to the universal church and to refer to the local church. How many of you have heard that before? I doubt that's brand new for you. But the universal church is the heavenly community of all true believers for all time. We might call it the big C church. It's everybody who's a true believer. They belong to the universal church, no matter where they are. As a matter of fact, Paul says it's an heavenly community. And that the moment you become a follower of Jesus in Ephesians 1, he says, you're already seated in the heavenlies. Your belonging to that community is so secure. It's as if you were there in that moment. And so I think a great thing for us to say is, I belong to the church because I belong to Christ. This is a really important connection. I belong to the universal church because I belong to Jesus Christ. It's immediate. That's where you belong. The body of Christ. The universal church. But I think there's a part to the understanding of this that really we need to unpack a little bit because too many people think that's all it means to be a part of the church and this thing we're doing here is optional, unnecessary, not that important. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he was trying to clear up a whole bunch of misconceptions about the church. And one of the things he told them in 1 Corinthians 12, which is a beautiful passage on the nature of the church, especially the local church. Remember, he's writing to a church, the church in Corinth. And he says, now you are the body of Christ in this locale. And individually, if you belong to Jesus and you're a member of this church, then you have a responsibility. And he lists all those responsibilities out. And so he says, I have an individual identity as a member of the body of Christ, the church. And we together are the members in Corinth that carry out the work and the mission of Jesus. And so we might say this, because I belong to the church, I belong to a church. Because I belong to Christ. You know, the New Testament knows nothing of a free agent. It knows nothing of believers doing church on their own terms. It knows nothing of being uncommitted and indifferent. It knows nothing of a casual take it or leave it attitude. As a matter of fact, where two or three are gathered together are not a church. Two or three Christians can gather in a bar. Two or three Christians can watch a Chiefs game. Two or three Christians can get together and do sushi. (laughs) 
where two or three are gathered is not a church. Now, a church has to have a group of true followers gathering for it to be a church. But just because Christians gather doesn't make it a church. I've got a friend who told that to me. After 20 years in a church, he's kind of doing church in his home. And, and I just, it took everything within my power not to freak out and flip out. I'm finding so many Christians that have such shallow perceptions of Christ's body that he died for, that he's coming back for. If you can't tell, I'm passionate. Are you a consumer? See, the way most Christians see the church as something to be consumed, as something of benefit to me, I'm a fan of the church. I do church on the internet. Man, I want my church to be hip and follow the culture. My church is kind of like a club. I pay a few dues and I get some good stuff. Or is a church a place where I contribute and serve and sacrifice? Is a church where I go to be the benefactor, to make life better for others? Is church where I go because I'm a follower of Jesus and I want to know how to follow Jesus through thick and thin. I want to have people hold me fast and hold me accountable. I want to make a difference in this world before I'm captured up in the rapture to go with Jesus forever away. Do I believe that a marriage could be on the internet and stay on the internet? Never. Can you do church on the internet? The answer is no. Can you watch a service while your kids are sick on the internet? Yes. Is the church about following culture or is it to remain salt that preserves the truth in society? Is a, is a church a club or is it a church? So, you know, a church has to have certain things. It has to have membership, committed believers that have committed themselves to Christ and one another. It has to have leadership. It has to have elders and deacons. It must have weekly gatherings for worship and biblical training. There must be the practice of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they must be on mission with Christ to make disciples and take the gospel to their neighbors and the ends of the earth. That's what a local church is. So if I was giving you a written de de definition of a local church, I would say a local church is a community, a committed community of baptized believers being shepherded by leaders who gather regularly to worship God, to be trained to obey God's word, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and to do God's work in the world as they wait for the return of Christ. That's what a local church is. That's the expression of Christ's community on earth of all those who are registered in Christ's community in heaven. 
The church is not a human institution, it's a divine institution. It's not optional, it's not sporadic, it's not an elective class for the believer. And as the body of Christ, we must have a deeper understanding of the church. You know, one of the ways that, and I'm gonna do touch and go landings here, you're gonna be frustrated. Fire hose, open up right now. I'm gonna give you nine metaphors for the church and I'm not gonna explain them. But I'd love to do a series on the metaphors of the church. But I'm telling you, if you want a deeper dive on who the church is and what the church does, then you should look at these metaphors because they help us to identify and understand the mission and work of the church. Like a family. You're a brother. You're a sister. You belong to an eternal family that has a loving father. The kingdom. You're a citizen of the kingdom with a king that reigns and rules and will establish it permanently forever and ever. You're a priest mediating the gospel and serving the high priest. You're an arm, you're a leg, you're an eye, you're a nose hair of the body. You and I serving the head. We're sheep in a flock with a great shepherd. We're soldiers in a war with a great commander. We're stones in a temple built on the chief cornerstone. We're attendants of the bride awaiting the groom. We are branches of the vine dressed by the Father. You could go on and on about the beautiful metaphors that help us to describe the nature, the meaning, and the purpose of the church. So let me get practical. Why do you need to be a member of a local church? And let me just say, my motivation right now is pure. And I want every person in this room to either be a member at Journey Bible Church or be a member someplace else. Because that's what the New Testament teaches. It doesn't teach Lone Ranger Christianity. And the reason, the reason The society has such a poor view of the church is because we have such an insufficient practice of the church. So here's why you should be a member. Number one, to be obedient. Gonna give you a verse in a minute that commands it. Two, to worship the risen Lord. To gather with other believers right now, exalting and making famous the name of Jesus. To give and receive love. The world will know that we are his disciples by the love we have for one another. To be discipled. To be developed. To grow in your faith. To have others that are wiser and stronger. To encourage you and develop you and to disciple you. To use your gifts that God has given you to help the church make disciples. And to expand and extend the reach of Christ's kingdom one heart at a time here and around the world. You know, I love this verse in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice what he says there. He doesn't say, hey, let one of you get all by yourself and figure it out. He says, let us, he's writing to the church. And he says, let us consider how to stir up to encourage, to stimulate, to get people going. And how? what are we focused on? Loving one another. And what else are we focused on? The good works that testify to the world of who Jesus is and what kind of Savior he is. 
and not neglecting our meeting together, making it a priority, not an option. Some have that habit, take or leave the church. But we instead should be encouraging one another. You know what the word encourage means? It means to breathe courage into the lives of others. And all the more, because things are going to get worse and worse until the return of Jesus Christ. I belong to a church because I belong to Christ. I'm not a consumer. I'm not a fan. I'm a follower. I'm a contributor. And I want you to be the same. The great benefit of our lives is that we belong to the universal church. Can I have an amen? amen. But the great benefit could be that we belong to Journey Bible Church. And if not Journey Bible Church, there are dozens of Bible-believing churches in Kansas City you could belong to. Choose one and become a member of a local church. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, which teaches us the true nature of your church. And Lord, we just confess that we've shallowed it out in our own lives, and we've shallowed it out at times at Journey Bible Church, and we've definitely shallowed it out in our culture. Help us now, Lord. Help us to be committed, contributing members of a local church, even this church, Journey Bible Church. Amen. And now for a special Q&A segment from this week's service. So I am Eli. I was on stage singing. And this is one of our soon-to-be seniors. Yes, Noelle. I'm Noel. I'm a junior here at Journey. So yeah, we've got some questions for you. So the first one is, does the church condone capital punishment? <laughs> so in the Old Testament, um, the, the foundation was uh, laid um, in the 10 words, the 10 commandments, thou shall not kill. And in the unfolding of the law, it, it was told that that the limits of the law should be, uh, for example, arm for arm, life for life. And so in the Old Testament, um, the understanding of the gravity of taking a life uh, in premeditated murder um, was to be um, uh, the taking of that person's life. And so in the New Testament, um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure of any verse that would teach otherwise so we would we would understand that um, as uh, a, a carryover of the importance of preserving life awesome thank you Mike so I think we're going to take a break now and give you a, <laughs> an easier an easier one okay um how does God's sovereign predestination of the elect work with our free will? <laughs> An easier question, Mike. Come on now. <laughs> All right. Who set them up for this? 
All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give another really simple answer. I don't think that it, the election of God and the choice of man are in any conflict. I think our difficulty is in the fact that we're bound in time and space and God is outside of time and space as we are. And so the way, if I was to use a metaphor, I would say that there's a, the door to heaven on the side that we would enter says whoever will. In other words, our choice. But on the side that is opened, it says those I chose. So I think, I think that they confirm one another and don't believe they're in opposition to one another. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Okay. Has the true church, true in quotes, replaced Israel? Why or why not? So um, I think it's really important um, to see the overarching work of God um, in history. And the Bible teaches us about a progression of revelation. So in other words, that, that like the Old Testament sacrificial system was set up so that, that we would understand our great high priest and the sacrifice once for all that he made. The book of Hebrews really unpacks that. And it talks about how when the new comes, the old is done away with. Okay, and so in, in the sense of, I think there's a continuity in the story of God that would tell us that the true people of God in the Old Testament were using a credit card looking forward to Jesus. Those of us that are now uh, in post-cross in the New Testament are using a debit card based on what Christ did. And so there's a continuity in the people of God. Um, I I don't see the church has replaced Israel. I think the Bible teaches that God still has a plan for his people and the book of Revelation unfolds a lot of specifics about in the future what God is going to do for the nation of Israel. And so uh, I do think there's, there's uh, Hebrews 11 says that we, the church, are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that believed in the Old Testament. So, so there's obviously true believers from the Old Testament. And I also believe, though, that, that God still has unfulfilled prophecies for the people of Israel to be fulfilled in the future. That's really good. Thank you. Uh, I guess we can go. Do you believe that after our death on earth, we will be in an eternal resting place until the second coming? Or... Will we be in paradise with the Lord immediately after death? So, um, the, and I'm trying to think of the verse. It, it's in, in Corinthians. Um, it speaks to the reality that at the moment that we die, um, we, our soul, is with the Lord. So, we are with him forever. This speci the specifics there about paradise and the term paradise and other things. I would say that as a believer, what you need to know is that you will, you will consciously and immediately be with the Lord until you receive your resurrection body. And uh, 1 Corinthians um, teaches quite a bit about that um, because there was concern about what happened to believers that might die. 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5 are really excellent on that also. Awesome. Perfect. Do we have time for one more? We do. I think. Time? Yeah. Yeah, I okay. think so. 
Great. Is it heretical to think the universe was created 14 billion years ago? So, so, um, man, this is where I need my Bible. Hold on. <laughs> Preacher's got to bring his Bible out. <laughs> Well, I have it electronically, but um, so I was reading in my devotions, and I, I thought it'd be really good for us to clarify um, the whole idea of time span. And I think what I would say is important in Hebrews 11. I'm actually a little nervous answering this question. Come on, Hebrews. You're right in here somewhere. There we go. In Hebrews 11, it says, uh, it says um, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So I think it's, it's really important for us to understand that what the book of uh, Genesis uh, teaches and the New Testament constantly reiterates is the idea that God created these things and he spoke into existence these things. And, and I I. I believe whether you agree that there were some evolutionary processes used along the path. I, I would tell you that my science background um, tells me that 99.9% .9 of all genetic mutations are negative to a species. And for pure evolutionary process to have taken place, you would have to have constant positive evolutionary genetic mutations that would advance a species rather than, than destroy a species. And, and so I, I just, I tend to believe that the Bible as it conveys itself um, in the book of Genesis and reiterated through the New Testaments is not about the age of the earth. It's about the reality that God created and that he has the power to do it as he said he did it. Yeah, Thank perfect. You. Thank you for that. Okay, this one says, and these are all completely anonymous, so it doesn't say this person's name. Um, it says, I know Jesus died on the cross and forgave our sins, but how do I forgive myself for the sins that I've committed? As humans, are there some things in life that we've done that can't be forgiven? Great question. So one of the things that I might do here is... Um, I might do a little, am I, am I still up on the screen? Can I have my iPad back up on the screen? Would that be okay? Great. I, I want to do a, a little timeline here, okay? And so, you know, if we go to eternity past, eternity future, I'm going to pretend there's a dot on there that's our lives, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put our lives here, okay? And so, so your life began at age zero, the person asking this question. And then at some point along the way, you did some things that you felt were really bad. And, and maybe they were after you accepted Christ, 
Maybe they were before you accepted Christ. Here's my question. When Christ died for your sins, did he die before your life began? What's the answer? It was back here. So when Christ died for your sins, he died for them as a package all at once, knowing every sin you would ever commit. In your life, they may feel past, present, and future. But to Christ, it was a package deal. So if you have truly trusted in Jesus, he has forgiven all of your sins. And because that is so beautiful, you are not compelled to serve him out of duty. You're compelled to serve him out of love. And that's the true nature of the church. That Christ is so loving that, as it says in Romans 5, 8, that in spite of the fact that we were sinners, Christ died for us when we're at our worst, not at our best. And so there is, there is no sin that can't be forgiven other than um, the unpardonable sin. And, and if nobody's asked about that, I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> uh, what is... Let's go to the next question. <laughs> the unpardonable sin is the rejection of Jesus. When, Short answer. When was hell first mentioned in the Bible, and why wasn't it mentioned earlier? So there are different terms for hell in the Old and the New Testaments, and the, you know a lot of you know a lot. Um, I think. Some people get really worried about when is a word first used and when is it, it might be better to ask when is the concept first conveyed. And the, the idea um, of uh, demonic oppressors and Satan and evil existing, including the eternal uh, place that people would be, is way back in the very beginnings of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis and all the way through. Um, and Jesus, from the very beginning in the Gospels, acknowledges those teachings and expands them uh, in the New Testament. Perfect. Okay. How do we allow ourselves to receive the fullness of God's grace while also taking seriously the consequences of sin? Can the knowledge of grace over our sins enable us to succumb to sin? So true grace never is an enablement. So if you think about what grace is, right? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Make sense? Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. So grace, in the, in the New Testament, in uh, 2 Timothy 2.1, it says, Therefore, my son, stand strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So grace wasn't just something we received to be born again. Grace is a present power source. And, and the whole purpose of that power source is to help us live out the Christian life. So grace, you can't use God's grace as enablement. You, you can only use God's grace to enable you to do right and true and holy things. Does that make sense? Okay. So we need to do this one instead? I don't know. 
Do you think that the church's lack of emphasis on, quote, keeping the Sabbath holy has affected the commitment of regularly attending church? Wow. Um, so um, I think I'd, I'd like to make a, a quick distinction. Um, the Sabbath uh, was um, the sign of the covenant, Right? Um, in the Old Testament. And we don't, even today as a church, we don't practice the Sabbath because we practice our, our gathering together on the day after the Sabbath. On the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. So the New Testament shifted from the practice of the Sabbath to the practice of the church gathering. And and I, the the only command of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament is keep the Sabbath. So uh, it, I think that um, practicing the Sabbath is a, a, a principle that needs to be taken seriously. Um, but any time law only exists to show sin, never to solve sin. Grace is what solves sin. So the practice of a time set apart for worship of God um, and rest with God should be in all of our lives. And, and I, I think there are other reasons why the church is struggling and it's not to do with the law of the Sabbath. Because last thing I want is a bunch of mechanical people showing up here who could care less whether they're here. Should we stop there? Great, thank you. Uh or you got one more? I mean, we have more. Band can, they're coming out. We got one more. Let's okay. do one more. Um, I could sit here all day. How, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, we have a, a real easy one for the last one. So how can you respond to someone calling you homophobic for being a Christian? That's a, that's a great question. And that, so, there's a bigger there's a bigger answer here. Um, you, you do understand that grouping and labeling is a planned way to shut down and to get people to cower in fear. So people shouting in your face, you're just homophobic, you're just nasty, you're outdated, and just listing all of those kinds of things, right? The whole idea is suppression. And you need to understand that the person yelling at you is not your enemy. The enemy of the church is Satan. He's your enemy. And whatever tactics people are using, I think you have to be secure enough and confident enough in Christ and his truth that you can hold fast and stand firm. That's why we train in here, to hold fast and stand firm. And then I think what you can do is you can respond to that individual and, and just try to paint a picture of truth as you see it. And, and, and if there's a Bible verse you can use, I, I, I would use it. Even if it's something as simple as, hey, I, you know, I don't hate. Christ commanded me to love all people. And I love all people. But that doesn't mean I have to agree with every person's individual choice. 
And I choose to stand on what the Bible teaches about sexuality. And I'm seeking to practice sexuality as taught to me by my Lord Jesus Christ. And I think if you can do that, you may be able to disarm them that you're rational, that you're, you're not homophobic or whatever other words they might throw at you. But sometimes if you're like me and people are screaming at you, you're about ready to let them have it, right? When they're calling you names, you're ready to let them have it. This is where Jesus told us that when we're being persecuted, words will be given to us. And uh, the best thing we can do in those moments is love the person who looks like our enemy and remember who the true enemy really is. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. Thanks for listening.